Let's pray. Father God, it is our desire today to enter holy ground, to come into your presence, seeking you in spirit and in truth, desiring to know you ever deeper, to learn in new and fresh ways from your word the plan that you have always had from the very beginning to dwell with mankind. I don't understand that, why you would want to, but you do. So show us this truth through our look at your various dwelling places where you have dwelled with man in history past, where you dwell with man today in the present, and where you will dwell with man in the yet future. Show us these truths so that we'll be even more thankful for your attributes, Lord, of, of unconditional love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. And Father, I ask that you would fill me with your spirit. I need it so desperately like a beggar reaching up for your grace so that I can recall what you have taught me and communicate it clearly to your people. Remove any hindrances to your word going forth in power today. Clear our minds so that we focus only on your word and not on all the cares of this world. And as the wilderness tabernacle was a place for your people to worship you, may we who are now your tabernacle on earth be gathered here to likewise worship you. We want to lift up Jesus Christ, who alone deserves the glory. Help us to see how the tabernacle holds the sequence of entering into your holy presence ever more intimately. Help us to realize that according to your word and its fantastic typological significance, we today are your priests. We are your royal priesthood serving in your current temple on earth, which is the church, and that we are each individually your temples, your tab tabernacles on earth, that our physical bodies are the basically the courtyard, our souls are the holy place where we commune with you, and our spirits are the holy of holies because your spirit dwells in us. Amazing. So we ask you to come today and work through the tabernacles of our bodies, our minds, and our spirits so that we are changed more into the likeness of the one who made it possible for you, holy, almighty God, to dwell eternally with once sinful people. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this is part one, the tabernacle, God's typological masterpiece. I'm going to do a bit of a review since it has been 26 months since we were in the book of Exodus. We left off, well, we, you know, we, we started with the beginning when Moses fulfilled his God-given commission to deliver the Israelites from their long bondage in Egypt. And then he and a large entourage of some two million people uh, left, you know, the Passover, and they left. And they finally arrived about 47 days after Passover, they arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai had actually been where earlier Moses, when he was 40 years old, had talked with the great I am that I am at the burning bush that, you know, burned but wasn't consumed. That is where he got his commission to deliver God's people. So 47 days later, they arrived at Mount Sinai, and then they were to cleanse themselves and prepare to meet God for three days, which made it 50 days from the time of the Passover that God then came down 
in a cloud and fire and uh, spoke to the people amidst thunder and lightning, scared them to death, the earth quaked, you know, and all that. And uh, it, it says that's when he, he called them to be his peculiar treasure, his chosen nation, and a kingdom of priests. What is interesting is that it was 50 days after the Passover, which is what the Jews to this day celebrate as the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Shavuot, they call it. They celebrate it as the birth of the nation of Israel. It's when God spoke to them from Sinai, gave them the law, and they say that's the birth of the nation of Israel. Well, it's interesting that 50 days after the Lord's crucifixion, what do Christians celebrate on that very day? We call it the Feast of Pentecost. What do we celebrate? The, the, church, the church was born on that same holiday, that same feast day, the Feast of Weeks. It was 50 days after. And that's when the <clears throat> fire came down again <laughs> on the, you know, above the heads of the disciples and, and the uh, believers in Jesus. You following me? So the birth of Israel and the birth of the church on the same day. Hmm, so interesting. Anyway, he gave them, he spoke audibly, the Lord God, who of course is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, he spoke audibly to them the Ten Commandments. A lot of people think the Ten Commandments came with Charlton Heston, you know, when he came down. <laughs> I guess saying that, young people probably don't know who he was, right? Charlton Heston played Moses in, the, you know, the Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille. Uh, anyway. They think that that's when they received the Ten Commandments. Actually, first, Israel heard the Ten Commandments spoken from God himself. The Ten Commandments are also known as the Decalogue or the Ten Words. And it scared the people so bad. They were so frightened that they begged Moses. They said, we can't do this anymore. We can't hear directly from God. So Moses, you speak to him and you be our intercessor. You be our mediator. And so that's why Moses went back up, you know, and uh, into the cloud by himself, and the people remained at a distance below the mountain. And when he went up, this time he received revelation concerning the civil laws. God gave him the civil laws. That's what we finished speaking about in chapters 21 to 23. It's all about how Israel, which was a newborn baby nation, you know, when Israel went into Egypt, she was just a family, Jacob's family. You know, his sons, his 12 sons and his um, uh, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, they went in, there were about 75 of them that went into Israel, and, I mean, into Egypt. Well, when, and then they were, all those years, they were in the womb of Egypt, right? Growing, getting bigger and bigger. So by the time they were birthed as a nation, at Sinai, there's some two million people. Uh, and they needed a new nation. They needed some laws. They'd been under Egypt's laws. So he gives them the civil laws, which is how to govern among themselves. Like we talked about um, how they were to treat servants, how they were to handle if somebody injured another person, or stole property from somebody. Uh, it was all kinds of different matters of justice, and you can read them about them in those chapters. But uh, he gave he gave Moses the civil laws, 
And then Moses came back down the mountain after getting the civil laws, and he shared what he had learned with the people, and uh, their immediate response was this. All the words which the Lord hath said, we will do. Hmm. They were a little bit naively overconfident in themselves, weren't they? <laughs> Y'all know what happened a little bit later. But uh, that was their verbal agreement to basically the Mosaic Covenant. Moses then built an altar <clears throat> at the foot of the mountain. This is in chapter 24, verse 4. And there he offered a sacrifice, and he sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on the altar, and he sprinkled it on the people. This was ratifying or sealing the covenant with blood. And uh, then God, after the covenant was sealed, God invited the nation's leaders up to the mountain to share a covenant meal with him. The leaders were Moses, his brother Aaron, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. And it was when they were up there <clears throat> that it said they saw under the feet of the Lord. They didn't see the Lord because he was covered, you know, in smoke and fire and everything. But under his feet, they saw a crystal clear pavement that was like sapphire stone, but you could see through it. That's kind of a picture of the sea of glass that we read about, you know, in heaven. Well, then later in chapter 24, Moses was again called up the mount to meet the Lord. Does anybody know how many times poor Moses, 80 years old, went up and down the mountain? He went up and down at least eight times. It's really confusing if you read through all this to get exactly how many times. But most commentators say it was about eight times up and down, 80 years old. I just got a Fitbit watch. Do you know what that is? I had never known what a Fitbit watch was. It's really weird. You know how you turn it on? In the middle of the night, I wear it in the middle of the night because it tells me how many hours of deep sleep. I, how many of you have a Fitbit watch? It tells you how many hours of deep sleep and how many hours of light sleep you get. I'm averaging 18 minutes of deep sleep a night. No wonder I'm always dragging around. I toss and turn like crazy. But it also tells you how many steps you take a day. Yesterday, I reached my goal. It went, all of a sudden, I was in the kitchen. My watch went, <laughs> what is that? <laughs> and it said, you met your goal. That's the first time I've met my goal since I got it. Right now, I'm, I'm almost there. Um, but anyway, I just wondered if Moses had a Fitbit watch. Can you imagine <laughs> how many steps? <laughs> One way to stay fit would be in the wilderness, walking and walking for 40 years. We'd all be skinny, wouldn't we? Okay, yes. <laughs> all right, so he's called back up the mountain, and this is in verses 12 and 13. And Joshua, this time Joshua was to accompany him, except Joshua was only allowed to go partway up. And then the elders had to stay below with Aaron and her. Remember her, H-U-R? Her was the man who helped hold up Moses' arms when they grew weary when they were battling the Amalekites. They were to stay below the mountain, at the foot of the mountain, and they were to remain there. They were given oversight responsibility for the camp in Moses' absence. 
They thought he was just going up and he'd come down pretty soon. They had no idea he was going to be gone 40 days and 40 nights. But anyway, when he went up this time, we read in verses 16 and 18, to 18 that the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it and the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on top of the mount and Moses went into the midst of the cloud. Well, all of this Sinai activity in Exodus chapter 24 is preparing us, it's actually pretty connective to the remaining chapters of Exodus, chapters 25 to 40, which are on the tabernacle. You see, as with Mount Sinai, the tabernacle also had an altar for sacrifices. It was called the brazen altar. It also had um, sacrifices and blood, and the blood had to be sprinkled on different things. And it also, the tabernacle, just like Sinai, represented a place for God to commune with men. The tabernacle, like Sinai, consisted of three increasingly holy places. As you entered the tabernacle and went through it, it got increasingly holy because you went from the wilderness outside to the outer court to the inner court where there was the holy place and then the holy of holies. Same way with Sinai. There were three increasingly holy places. There was the base of the mount where only, you know, the people had to wait around the base. Um, and then partway up the mount where Joshua was allowed to go, and then the top holy ground, where only Moses was allowed to go, just like the holy, I mean, not the holy, the high priest was only allowed to go into the holy of holies once a year. But he was the only one ever allowed in there. Moses was the only one allowed to go to the top of the mountain. And then in both cases, Sinai and, tabern and the tabernacle, what did you have around them? You had the wilderness. And what does the wilderness represent? This world. This world. So there's similarities there. Um, and in both, of course, at Sinai and when the tabernacle was finished, what happened? It says the glory of the Lord came down and dwelt on the top of Sinai, the most holy place. And when they finished the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord came down and settled in the holy of holies, on the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim wings of the mercy seat which covered the Ark of the Covenant. But there was an even earlier tabernacle than earthly tabernacle than Mount Sinai. Actually, the first sanctuary on earth where God met with man was Eden. Eden. And we'll talk about Eden later on. Sinai was actually the second earthly tabernacle where God met with man. Um, but because of man's fall into sin, the Lord God no longer could walk with man in his unveiled glory on Sinai as he had originally in Eden when man was yet sinless. I think I've gotten behind here, have I? No? No. Oh. All right. You see that? Okay. Got that? Wish it was clear. Here's the next one. 
Okay, because it, you know it wasn't God's intention for Israel to stay forever at the foot of Mount Sinai. Where was she headed? Right, exactly, the promised land. She messed up, so it took her 40 years to get there. But he, she wasn't supposed to remain there. Do you know how long she did remain there? 13 months. Um, but his plan was for her to move on and go to the promised land of Canaan, which he had promised to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, etc. His plan now was to dwell with her throughout her wilderness journey to the promised land. His glorious presence would not just be manifested to her ahead of her, guiding her and leading her as a pillar of cloud by day, and a, I said like a giant flashlight <laughs> at night. That wasn't his plan just to be always in front of her. He wanted to be in her midst. He wanted to dwell with her. He wanted to come off of Sinai and live with her in a portable tent. And this is part of the reason why he called Moses up to him again. And this time, Moses remained with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. That's in chapter 24, verse 18. And when he was up there, oh, he received a whole lot of revelation from God. He, this time, he received the written Ten Commandments. The first time, the Ten Commandments were given verbally to Israel. Second time, Moses went on there, up there, and God wrote them with his own finger, didn't he, on two stone tablets. But actually, before he gave him the Ten Commandments in written form, he started with the tabernacle. While he was up there, Moses got de a detailed blueprint from God Almighty about constructing the tabernacle um, for God to live in. And it was through the tabernacle that God revealed what we could call his religious laws. So Moses, the, the law, the Mosaic law consists of three parts. Everything with God is in threes, it seems like. Uh, his law consisted of civil laws, that's how the nation was to treat each other. The moral laws, that's basically how you, you know, deal with yourself. And then the religious laws, or they're also called the ceremonial laws, that's how, you know, you're to worship God. So it's with each other, civil, moral, with yourself, and religious, how to worship God. And uh, so it's tripartite, just like God himself. So he received all that up there with the tabernacle. Now, remember how we started this whole Old Testament Christology study? finding Christ in the Old Testament. What was our basic springboard for all of this? Well, it was when the Lord on Resurrection Sunday afternoon joined two disciples on their way out of Jerusalem back to their hometown, I guess, of Emmaus. And they're very distressed and despondent and despairing because the one they had hoped was the Messiah had been crucified, he had hung on a tree, he was cursed, he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. And he joins them incognito, they have no idea who he is, and he's saying, why are you, you, know, why are you so upset? And they tell him everything, and then all of a sudden he says, oh, you fools. <laughs> I love that. Uh, he says, ought not Christ to have suffered 
first, you know, before he entered into his glory, it was given all throughout the Bible that the Messiah had to suffer first. He had to die. You know, that's what the whole tabernacle is about. Blood, you know, blood, sin, substitute, sacrifice. And he went through the whole, it says, Moses and the prophets explaining the things concerning himself. That's what we call the unrecorded Emmaus Road spiritual heartburn sermon. Long title. Why do I call it spiritual heartburn? Because when he was finished giving it to those guys, they said, did not our hearts burn within us? They finally, their eyes were open to see how Christ is in so many things. Why am I saying this? Well, because I would say almost dogmatically that he certainly must have shared with them how the tabernacle was a picture type of him. It is the masterpiece typological picture of him. It surely must have been on his priority list of what to teach them. I call it one of those verily, verily subjects for the Lord God. And I know I'm standing on solid ground when I say that because scripture, scripture has statistics that prove to me how important the tabernacle is to God or was to God as a picture of his son and of salvation, redemption. Here's the statistics, okay? One of them is, okay, how many chapters in the Bible do we have on the creation account? Two, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Two chapters on the creation of everything in the universe. How many chapters, I've already told you this, but it's also up there if you can read it. How many chapters do we have in the Bible on the tabernacle? Fifty. So which do you think God looks at more importantly? Well, he created the whole universe just so he could dwell with man. <laughs> That's his priority. Another statistic is, okay, how many days did God spend creating the universe? Six days. He rested on the seventh. So six days to create everything. How many days did it take him to explain to Moses the details for the tabernacle? Forty. Forty days. So there you go. I'm, I'm sure he probably touched on this subject during his Emmaus Road sermon. Well, Exodus 25, now we move on to that chapter. The Lord instructed Moses to make the tabernacle after the pattern that he would show him. He says that in verse 9, and he says it again in verse 40 after the pattern that he would show him. Now the word for pattern is just like the word type, a picture of something. In Hebrews 9.9, the tabernacle is called a figure. So you have pattern, type, figure. Evidently, from this, we can conclude that Moses was not only given a verbal blueprint for the tabernacle. You know, he was given verbal instructions about everything regarding the tabernacle and all that was associated with it, how to make it, the dimensions, etc. But he also received a vision of what it was to look like. Hebrews 8.5 says that the earthly tabernacle was a pattern of heavenly things. So it was a scale model 
of the heavenly reality. There is, in other words, something in God's third heaven that corresponds in proportion and appearance to what the Lord told Moses to construct on earth. Now we know that in the book of Revelation, the apostle John, exiled to the Isle of Patmos, was in the spirit when he was given the revelation of the book of Revelation. He was in the spirit and he was caught up to see God's third heaven. Well, what were some of the things he saw up there? He saw seven golden candlesticks with Christ in the middle. That corresponds to the large lampstand in the holy place of the tabernacle. He saw hidden manna up there in the third heaven. Was there hidden manna in the tabernacle? Yes, it was inside the Ark of the Covenant, a pot of manna, along with the two stone tablets of the law and Aaron's rod that budded. John also saw a sea of glass. Well, that corresponds to the brazen laver in the courtyard that was filled with water and that was made with women's mirrors out of polished brass, not glass mirrors, but polished brass, real shiny so they could see themselves. That's like the sea of, um, the sea of glass. Then he also saw an altar of sacrifice. And, uh, you know, if you read uh, Revelation, the tribulation saints, those that were martyred for, that will be martyred for their faith in Christ during the tribulation, they're seen under the altar. And then also he saw an altar of incense. And there is an altar of incense in the tabernacle. And one other thing he saw. We should tell this to Indiana Jones because, you know, he's still looking for the ark. Guess where the Ark of the Covenant is? Well, we don't know on earth, but there's one in heaven because John saw the Ark of the Covenant in heaven. So not only did Moses receive verbal instructions about the tabernacle, he received a vision, I believe, because God said, I will show you. In Exodus 25, verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, and let them, that's the people of Israel, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And then he proceeded to give the minute instructions for the portable tent building, uh, most commonly referred to as the tabernacle. There are many other titles for it. I don't know where my handout is, but you can look at your handout and see it's called the tent of meeting and all kinds of different, tent of the congregation, that's all right. You just look at that, I won't give you all the titles, but many names for it will stick with the tabernacle, which literally means dwelling place dwelling place or tent um, it's called a sanctuary because that that um, refers to God's nearness to his people um, he not only gave the blueprint for the tabernacle but then he also inspired every aspect of the work to build it he is God is the master architect well of course he is who built the whole universe I think it's so appropriate that when Jesus came down, he is a tabernacle, you know, he lived in a tabernacle of, a hu of human flesh. What career did he, what occupation did he take up? Carpenter. Isn't that so appropriate? Because he's a master builder. 
Is he still at work? Yes. What is he doing today? He's Yes, he's making permanent dwelling places for us in his father's heavenly tabernacle, his father's house. So appropriate. Now, we might wonder why the Lord was so specific. If you read through Exodus, you will probably fall asleep. Why was he so specific in his instructions about everything related to the tabernacle? What it was to look like, what the materials for this and that were to be, how, the, what, how it was to be built. Some things were to be hammered and out of one piece and just all kinds of details. It's dimensions. So many dimensions are given. Um, why, why all this detail? Well, an obvious reason is because it served as a figure or a type of the coming Savior, the eternal, glorious Son of God. It was a picture of the one who would come down to dwell with man in a tent of human flesh. When the wilderness tabernacle was completed, just like Christ in Mary's womb, I asked yesterday how long it took, and then I realized I had the answer on the PowerPoint. I was going to ask you a question. How long do you think it took to complete the tabernacle? Very good. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Nine months. And we, have, we can back that up with Scripture because it gives us dates. Isn't that fascinating? What does the tabernacle picture? What, who does the tabernacle picture? Christ. Hmm. Nine months. Hang on to that thought because I'm going to go back to that later on at the end of our lesson. I hope you don't have to leave early because I've, I've got some thoughts about when Jesus was really born. People ask me, do you think he really was born at Christmas time, December 25th? The answer is no. Absolutely not. That's when the pagans celebrated the sun god. It was a big holiday for them, so the Christian, the, anyway... It is interesting. Son, you can spell S-O-N instead of S-U-N. But they know because of the Bethlehem shepherds that he was actually born in the spring. So I have, I have just a little theory, a little idea about when his birthday was. So we'll get to that later on. That's called a teaser. <laughs> so it took about nine months to, um, to build the tabernacle. And when everything was approved by God... We are told, and all the pieces of furniture, furniture was in the tabernacle, um, we're told that the glory of the Lord came down and filled it. Now John, going back to John again, in John 1.14, he testified, he said, we were eyewitnesses to the glory of the Lord Jesus. He says, we beheld his glory. Now, who is he talking about when he says we? Well, John was talking about himself, his brother James, and Peter. When did they behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, those three guys? On the Mount of Transfiguration. When the Lord kind of rent his flesh and let that divine Shekinah glory show through. It was the very same glory that they saw on 
uh, the Mount of Transfiguration that came down on Mount Sinai, that came down on the tabernacle, later came down and filled Solomon's temple, same Shekinah glory that led them in the wilderness by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. It was the same Shekinah glory that Moses saw in the burning bush. You get it? And who was that? Who was that glory? Was it God the Father? No, always God the Son, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus. You remember when Gabriel told Joseph, uh, that his spouse bride Mary, who was a virgin, was going to bring forth a son, and they were to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us in a portable tent. Christ came to be with man. That's always been his desire, to dwell with man. And he was still veiled when he came, he was still veiled, but this time his veil wasn't, you know, clouds and fire, etc. His veil was his human flesh. He came to be the once for all sin sacrifice for man so that he could restore the broken relationship between himself and man. The Old Testament tabernacle was where God dwelt with his people. Where does he dwell with his people today? In us, in the church, we're his body today. We form his tabernacle. We are his tabernacle. But he, uh, he, he wanted to dwell with his people, and he did it in the tabernacle. But it was limited. It was much less than what we have today, wasn't it? Because today, I mean, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and only the priest could go into the holy place. But we actually, it's hard to understand this, but we are actually indwelt by God. God the Holy Spirit. That never happened before. We live in a wonderful age. <laughs> the Spirit of God indwells us. That's why I always say to somebody who wants to do harm to themselves if they're a Christian, you know, there are people that do that, Christians, get down on themselves and whatever, but I say, you know, your body is the temple of God. It would be comparable to you going to Solomon's temple just like the Romans did and destroying it. Now, you wouldn't do that, would you? Or be like Antiochus Epiphanes and, and do something to the, other, the, 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 uh, the first temple? So, the, you know, we, our bodies are the temple of God. We need to treat them as best as we can. <laughs> i got to remind myself that. That's what my, you know... My Fitbit does. <laughs> I wake myself up in the middle of the night, you know, when I raise my hand. All of a sudden, there's a light in my eyes because this thing comes on. <laughs> uh, okay, so, um, so, yes, the fulfillment. You know, the fulfillment is always better than the type. The reality is always better than the shadow. So even, even the wonderful truth of our positional righteousness in Christ today and our bold access to the throne of God in our prayers. You know, we can go boldly before the throne of God. Even that, as wonderful as that is, it's still limited and much less than what we will one day enjoy when we literally f dwell with God in our, in our glorified, incorruptible 
bodies and we live with him forever. Revelation 21.3 says this about the future of believers in Christ. It says, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will, will, will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Can you even begin to fathom just slightly how much God must love us don't know why, but he does. He loves us so much that he went to the greatest lengths imaginable. God Almighty, creator of everything, he literally became an earthly tent and allowed the very men he created to destroy his tent. Remember, destroy this temple? And they did. He allowed them to destroy his earthly tabernacle so that he could remove every sin barrier that separated us from him and so that he could dwell with us forever. That is amazing love. Amazing love. Now, you know, of course, that when, God, when the scripture speaks of God dwelling with man, it doesn't mean that he vacated heaven, that heaven, he left heaven in, you know, to, the, uh, to Gabriel or Michael or someone. You're in charge while I go down to earth. Of course not. That's ridiculous. Solomon rightly said in his dedication prayer to the temple, he said that no man-made temple could possibly contain the fullness of God. It was the Shekinah glory that dwelt with Israel in her wilderness journey. Now, Shekinah is an Old Testament word that refers to one who dwells. You don't find Shekinah glory spoken about in the New Testament because Jesus was the visible manifestation of the Shekinah glory. Um, so you have Shekinah, meaning one who dwells. That was an Old Testament term for divine presence. As with the Hebrew word memra. Do you remember that when, if some of you were with us when we studied Christ in Genesis, we talked a lot about the word memra, Memra is actually the word word. <laughs> Memra translates into Greek as logos. In the beginning was the word. Or if you were speaking Hebrew, you'd say in the beginning was the memra. If you were speaking Greek, in the beginning was the logos. All the same. So what it is is that the memra, the logos, the word referred to God's spoken communication with man, and Shekinah referred to his visible manifestation with men, like his glory, you know, in the burning bush and the pillar of cloud, etc. Both Memra and Shekinah were Old Testament terms for who? For the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So here's a big question. Why, and one of my grandchildren asked me this, why do we need to study, as Christians today, why do we need to bother studying about an ancient Jewish tent? 
in the middle of a desert somewhere. <laughs> the, no, the Lord no longer meets with his people in a building made of inanimate objects. He indwells every genuine member of his church. We are today his earthly tabernacle. So why should we bother to learn about an old wilderness tent? Why? Well, one reason is because 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? Doctrine. All right, I am going to teach you, if you haven't memorized that verse, an easy way to memorize it. If you've already memorized this, share it with your children. I hope you can see the boards up here. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Did you know that scripture is an eye doctor? Think of it that way. Scripture improves our eyesight when we learn scripture, right? We get spiritual eyes. And we all want 20-20 vision, don't we? Okay, so scripture is an eye doctor. Now you can memorize this verse by thinking of Dr. C-I. S-E-E-E-Y-E. Dr. C-I. Wouldn't that be a great name for an ophthalmologist? <laughs> All right, so now you do an acrostic with the letters, Dr. C.I. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for D, Dr. D. Doctrine, Dr. D.R. Reproof, Dr. C. Correction, Dr. I. Instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You get that? Isn't that a neat way to learn it? Dr. C.I. When we omit any portion of scripture, we suffer eye loss. So we are supposed to study about Old Testament tents, especially ones that picture Christ. Also, we are told that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for what? Our learning, for our benefit. Another important reason to study the tabernacle is because it is God's typological masterpiece of his son and his redemptive work for mankind. The tabernacle pictures Christ's incarnation. Also, the tabernacle and its priesthood demonstrated visually. Remember I said God always works with illustrations? It's like reading a Bible picture book. It demonstrated visually how God is able to manifest mercy and grace to sinful people in a matter in a manner that satisfies his holy justice. You know, how can he be merciful to lawbreakers, sinners, and still be just? You don't consider a, a judge a good judge if he doesn't judge sin, right? And throw, throw the bad guy in the prison and not let him out 10 minutes later. <laughs> So, how, how can this be? Well, the clues for how this could be, how God should, could show mercy on sinners, the clues are given inside the ark. The ark was a hollow box. What was in it? We already discussed that. The, the law, the two stone tablets. All right, here's the clues inside the ark. 
there was a pot of manna. Christ is the true manna who came down from heaven. He is the bread of life, right? He, the manna, came down from heaven. He fulfilled the law. And then he was put to death on a tree, a dead tree that was made into a cross. Well, the tree, the cross of Calvary, is represented by the third item in the ark, which was Aaron's rod, his staff. He walked around with a dead branch. You know what that branch was once when it was living? It was part of an almond tree. And it miraculously, I won't tell you the whole story about that, but it miraculously came back to life, didn't it? It budded with almond flowers and everything, and it was put into the ark. So what we have is the clues. The true manna, Christ came down from heaven. He fulfilled the law. He was put to death on a tree, but he rose from the dead in new life, and that is the gospel message. And because he did all that for you and I, he can show mercy when we're identified with him. He can show mercy on lawbreakers, on sinners. Did you follow all that? It's really pretty neat. Well, the tabernacle is also a visible illustration of uh, God's plan for, of salvation. We'll see that. And an understanding of the tabernacle is really pretty important um, to understand a great deal of the New Testament. If you didn't understand about the tabernacle, you'd be lost in a lot of passages in the New Testament, especially the book of Hebrews. Half of the book of Hebrews is references back to the tabernacle. Also, a study of the tabernacle priesthood is critical to rightly understanding Christ's high priestly ministry. And it also aids us in understanding and appreciating our role today as priests. We are his believer priests, royal priesthood today. Also, the tabernacle sacrifices teach us the necessity for a blood sacrifice to atone for sin. And then very interestingly, the tabernacle is a visual picture of the believer's three stages of spiritual growth. Starts with salvation in the outer court at the brazen altar, goes to sanctification, once we're saved, we're ever increasingly made holy, made more into the image of Christ, we're set apart, we're washed in the water of the laver, and then we move on into the holy place, and that continues sanctification, and finally one day we pass through the veil into glorification, three stages of our spiritual growth. So that's why we study the Old Testament tabernacle. Now, in the remaining 16 chapters of Exodus, the focus on the tabernacle and the priesthood is only disrupted one time. Huh. And that disruption is very sad to read about. It's in chapter 32, and it is the shocking golden calf episode when Moses came down after 40 days and 40 nights and got, had the 
two stone tablets in his hand. And when he saw what happened down there while he was gone, he couldn't believe it. And you can see the anger on his face there, <laughs> Mr. Heston. And he threw those down and broke them before the people even saw them. Can you believe they did that? Isn't that amazing? All that the Lord says we will do. And as soon as Moses is out of their sight, they gather all their jewelry and their gold and they melt it down and build a golden calf. Well, I kind of feel sorry for them. A little bit, because where have they been for hundreds of years? They've been over in Egypt, and uh, this might be a problem. Not working. I'll use my finger right now. Well, no, I think it froze up. Well, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> I almost froze up. <laughs> Billy Ray. Oh, here we go. Okay. They've been in Egypt, and uh, what was Egypt full of? Gods and goddesses. And, uh, and so they kind of, I guess, in their minds, thought, even though he had spoken, you know, you shall not have no other gods before me and you shall not make any grave in him. In their minds, they were going to worship God through an idol. I mean, that's just what people did. So they were kind of naive and dumb about it. I guess God must have forgiven them. Because, well, Moses interceded on their behalf. But can you believe Aaron became the high priest of Israel and he was the one in charge of this thing? God really is merciful, isn't he? But anyway, that's in chapter 32. And then in chapters 33 and 34, we read about Moses' intercession on behalf of the people. And uh, actually, this was a prime example of how not to worship God. <laughs> but that's the only interruption in those 16 chapters to the, the tabernacle. The rest is about the tabernacle. You know, when the great I am that I am met with Moses to tell him that he now desired a sanctuary in which he could dwell in the midst of his people, that must have really thrilled Moses, don't you know? Because no nation had ever before experienced such an amazing blessing. I mean, they had all these gods and goddesses in the other lands, but they didn't move, did they? I mean, they were carved out of stone or whatever, metal or wood, um, but they didn't have a living God that you could actually see. And, and Israel, you know, this young nation was going to have God living among them, and they could see his glory above the the tabernacle, no matter where they went, they could see, that's pretty amazing. I would like that, wouldn't you? <laughs> Come to church and see God's glory above the steeple or something. Well, we don't need it because he's living in us, so we have it even better. But that, I'm sure he was thrilled. Well, then his detailed instructions for the tabernacle are given in chapters 35 to 39. Uh, no, excuse me, in chapters 25, 26, 27, 30, 31. All the details. It's, it's really pretty boring, but he gives all the details about how to build the ark, how to build the, the laver, what to build it out of, the dimensions, etc., etc. You have all that. And then in chapter uh, 28, you read about the priestly garments and how they were supposed to be made for Aaron and his sons. And then chapter 29, Aaron is consecrated by Moses for the high priesthood. So chapters 35 to 39 then contain the record of Israel's obedience to all the instructions in making the tabernacle and its furnishings and its priestly garments and etc. So what you have 
up here, if you can see that, chapters 25 to 31, Moses gets all the instructions for building the tabernacle. Then you've got that interruption about the golden calf. And then the remaining chapters, 35 to really 39, is the implementation of the instructions. So do this, do this. Oh, there's a golden calf. And then, okay, we did this, we did that. And then we put it all together on a certain date, it tells us in Exodus 40, and when they put it all together, the glory of the Lord came down. That's how it concludes in chapter 40. So that's a quick outline of the book of Exodus. God's plans to dwell in fellowship with his redeemed people is a major theme developed throughout the Bible. The tabernacle was merely one place of his residence in an ongoing series of dwelling places. That began with Eden. First place God dwelt with man was in Eden. And it will end in the heavenly Eden of the new Jerusalem. Now we already discussed Mount Sinai as being the first place where God met with man. But let's find the others, okay? Beginning with Eden. We talked about Sinai, but we didn't talk about Eden. Before the fall, Adam walked with the Lord God in the garden. You all know that verse, right? Who was he walking with? The second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate Lord. Christ created a special garden sanctuary on earth where he daily met with man. Now, we don't know how long that Edenic fellowship between holy God and sinless man continued. We don't know how long that went on before that tragic day when God came to man, but man did not come to God. He was hiding. <laughs> Adam, who was innocent but not righteous, you see, he was sinless, innocent, but to be declared righteous, you must resist temptation to sin. You must maintain your faith in God against temptation. Why did God allow Satan into the garden? So that man could be made righteous by, by defeating temptation and hanging on to his faith in God. You see the difference? You have to think about that. He was sinless, but he wasn't righteous. So he, he disobeyed. He didn't pass that test. <laughs> he disobeyed God, and then he tried to hide his naked shame with a covering of his own making. Works, you know? Work system. All religions are like that, and it is a, it's a futile enterprise. Sin broke man's personal and positional relationship with his creator. But good news is it did not break God's desire for a personal relationship with Adam and his descendants. God could have just wiped his hands clean and said, forget it, I don't need men. I don't need to fellowship with them. He could have just done that. But even though Adam turned his back on God, God did not turn his back on Adam because with God there is no shadow of turning. From eternity past, the Lord had devised a, 
a plan to restore fellowship with man. Because you see, when he created man, did he know that man would eventually sin and rebel against him? Did he know that? Yes, he knows the end from the beginning. He knew that would happen. But that is the risk you take when you give a cre creature free will. You see, he didn't want people just robotically obeying him and being forced to love him. Because forced love is not genuine love, is it? You don't want to force your husband to love you because then it's not really genuine love. So he had a plan. He knew man would sin. And he had a plan how he would restore fellowship, how he could show mercy on a lawbreaker. And that plan, that way of restoration was himself. He would be the sin substitutionary sacrifice for man. But until the appointed time for his atonement work to be accomplished, which we looked at, you know, last time with Tetelestai on the cross there, he gave periodic glimpses of what fellowship with him is like. He walked with Enoch. He talked with Noah. He ate with Abraham. Abraham was even his friend. And he spoke audibly to Israel, scared her to death, but he did. And then he met face to face with Moses. So he gave periodic glimpses of what it's like to walk with him, to be in fellowship with him. Well, after their deliverance from Egyptian bondage, the Israelites were pilgrims on their way to the land God promised to their patriarchs. They were basically Bedouins, nomads, living in tents and moving from place to place as they were led by the Shekinah glory cloud of God by day and the cloud of fire by night. That double pillar, the Shekinah, was in fact the pre-incarnate Christ leading them. Then in the unfolding revelation of his plan for spiritual redemption for both Israel and also for the world, when the Israelites arrived at Sinai, it was time for God's chosen nation to build him a movable, a portable earthly sanctuary. With the portable tabernacle, God was identifying himself with tent-dwelling people. He actually became uh, a pilgrim in the wilderness with them, so to speak. And isn't that exactly what Christ did when he came to earth? He became a pilgrim identifying with us in this wilderness journey. He came down to where man is so he might guide him and fellowship with him. And this is exactly what he said to the children of Israel about the tabernacle. He said, there I will meet you. Um, I, I will meet with thee, that's the Shekinah, I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee, that's the Memra. It all foreshadowed his incarnation, Christ's incarnation. It also all foreshadowed the church. Whenever the Lord led Israel to another location, they were traveling for 40 years. Do you know how many times they moved? They had to pack up that tabernacle and move to another location. Do you know, anybody want to guess how many times? You'll say 70. It wasn't that many. <laughs> 30 times they, they moved. 
during those 40 years. How many times have you ever moved? Not 30. Not 30. I don't, anybody here has moved 30 times. Maybe somebody has, but that's, hmm. Um, I've never moved. I've been in the same home my entire married life, going on 48 years, the same home. And I love it. I don't want to move. I don't want to have to clean out that attic. Ooh. <laughs> One day it's just going to collapse on us, I know. 48 years of stuff, you know. Mm. Well, whenever the Lord led Israel to another location, the Levites, now the Levites were responsible for uh, dismantling all the furnishing and taking the boards and the tents apart and all that. And uh, they had to carefully wrap everything. They had a very organized procession that they were, God gave it to them, how they were supposed to um, go when they went to a new location. The tribe of Judah was to be in the front. And then there were other tribes, and there were carts where they put all this stuff on it for the tabernacle. It was all very specific. Um, the, all of the seven pieces of furniture had um, big, um, what do you call them, like, I can't think of the word, rings, big rings, golden rings on them, and, except for the labor. And they would put poles, long poles, as you see in this picture, so that they didn't, they, they, that's how they carried. The Levites would carry the different pieces of furniture on their shoulders. The only piece of furniture that never had the poles removed, when they put it in the tabernacle, the poles were there permanently, was which piece, do you think? The, exactly, the Ark of the Covenant. The laver, the giant laver in the courtyard that was full of water, I'm sure they poured the water out before they moved it. It would be too heavy. But it did not have poles on it. Um, and it was not covered. It's interesting because the laver made out of mirrors, full of water, it actually pictures the word of God. And we need the word every day, don't we? We need cleansing every day. And so it was never covered, even in moving, which I think is interesting. That's another symbolism. But how did they, how did they um, move the ark without the Levites or the priests? Well, the Levites couldn't go in, so the priests had to do this. The Levites were only allowed in the outer court. The priests could go into the inner court, called the tabernacle proper. But how did they move the ark without seeing it. Nobody was supposed to see the ark with the mercy seat on it. Well, I found out in all my research that what they would do is they would, the priests would go into the holy place where they could go, you know, where the lampstand and the table of showbread and the altar of incense were, and the veil, they would take the veil down from the curtains and then they would just cast it down onto the ark inside the Holy of Holies so that nobody saw it. And then, it was covered in the veil, then they would throw a big leather, piece of leather over that, and then on top of the leather, they would put um, blue, blue wool. They covered all the pieces of furniture with a blue wool covering. So that's just extra knowledge. I just think that's interesting to find out about those things. That's how they moved, and they moved 30 times. Every piece of furniture and all that you're going to hear about had to be moved. It was quite an ordeal. Well, as the scripture narrative continues beyond the events of Exodus, once we get out of the book of Exodus and go on and on, we learn, of course, that eventually they did end their wilderness journey and finally came into the land of Canaan. 
The pilgrimage, her pilgrimage, led to her stationary residency. Her tents, they lived in tents for 40 years. If you've been waiting a long time for a house, <laughs> just think of this, 10, 40 years in tents. But finally, their tents were replaced with houses. She became a, an established nation with a king. And years later, it was actually King David who finally realized that while he dwelt in a palace of cedar, God's earthly residence was a tent of curtains. Should have thought of that earlier. You know, I'm living in a palace and God's in a tent. How many years did the tabernacle last? Most people would probably say, well, 40 years. Or maybe 39, you know, because you have to subtract that first year when they were building it for nine months. And Wouldn't you say that? And as soon as they got into the promised land, that was the end of the tabernacle? Not so. Do you know how long the tabernacle existed before Solomon's temple was finished and built and the glory of the Lord moved from the tent to the palace, <laughs> to the temple? Anybody want to take a guess how many years? I want you to quickly look at this. If you can move over to 1 Kings 6, 1. 1 Kings 6, verse 1. 